Hello and welcome to this episode of Political Debrief. I'm your host, Josh Oliverio. I usually publish a new episode every two weeks. However, since this week is kind of an off week, a week that I don't publish an episode, I have decided to publish the full merged version of my recent conversation with Kitchener Center MP Mike Morris. The interview covered so many topics that I felt it was necessary to split the interview into two parts. I've decided to publish the full merged version so that way it's easier for people to listen. I'll play that conversation for you now and if you want you can take a look at the links down below to see part one and part two separate as well as the video version of this full interview. I hope you enjoy. All right, and joining me now is the Member of Parliament for Kitchener Centre, Mike Morris. Thank you so much for taking the time today. It's really great to chat again. Thanks to, uh, to you, Joshua, for inviting me back. So uh, I want to start off by talking about your personal experience as an MP, but I think we have to go back a little bit further uh, to start that. What made you decide to run for public office? I appreciate you asking because I think it's so important. In in my case, it was like this deep sense of calling. I I had spent ten years uh, working with businesses one on one to build networks of support for them to set targets and reduce their climate impact, both in my community in Waterloo Region and and across the country. And after ten years, that I kind of took a step back, and while you know, proud of, of, of the progress we were able to make together. Also recognized that if you read the most recent climate science, on the whole, we're just, we're not moving fast enough and we're actually not in the right direction at all. As uh, you know, this is actually the first year our emissions uh, went down this most recent and some might say that's actually attributed to um, the pandemic as opposed to any actions that governments have taken. So I took a step back and I guess it was a mix of frustration as well as some optimism that you know, if we had folks in Ottawa setting federal policy differently, when it relates to so many of the most uh, complex challenges we face, wealth inequality, the climate crisis, housing, and if we could do it in a way that just turned down the temperature a little bit, uh, I just felt that the partisanship I was seeing so often was serving political parties. It wasn't serving people. It wasn't serving us. And so I guess all that came together it, that, that really felt to be this deep sense of calling. And why I say that that's so important is because it got hard in the campaign at different points and to some extent in my time in Ottawa so far as well. And my sense is that when I push through, so you might know and listeners as well might know that in you know, 2019 in the first campaign, I was diagnosed with stage one testicular cancer partway through. And that was difficult to move through, but made easier by the fact that I had such a deep sense of calling to continue uh, moving through the camp, the campaign. So that's what really instigated it for me was recognizing that if, if we continue to send, you know, billions of dollars in subsidies to oil and gas companies, it makes it a whole lot more difficult to be working one-on-one uh, if, uh, if the marketplace is so distorted and it's really federal policy where, um, where we can shift some of the systemic uh, challenges to orient towards 
uh, towards serving people and, and, and kind of having a social justice lens to it. So that's what all kind of brought me to running in the, in the first place. So then, you know, 2019 was your first time running for a federal party in a federal election. Um, and I remember uh, on election night back in September of 2019, like in Waterloo region, a green candidate finished not last. And I thought that was like incredible. And I think it speaks to, you know, the type of different politics that you encourage people to participate in. Talk about kind of what was it like door knocking and talking to people for the first time in 2019, getting kind of a feel for how to, you know, win, a, win an election? Well, it was a lot of what you just finished sharing. It was demonstrating to my community that it was possible for a Green to win because many would say, and I'd be honest, you know, you know to your point earlier, in the 2015 election, uh, Green secured 3% of the vote, about 1,500. Uh, not nearly enough to come close. I think they were in, in, in fourth. And so when we, and I say we, uh, it was about 400 people who helped uh, when it came to knocking on doors and hosting backyard conversations. This was hundreds and hundreds of people from drawing the map routes to entering the data. It is a pretty incredible effort across party lines when it comes to the civic engagement in our democracy that so many people put in. And in our case, it was, it was yeah, 400 or so people. For me, what was important about how we did it was we tried to center democracy ahead of politics. And what I mean by that is if you've ever received a phone call from a political party around election time, you'll know one of the first questions the person on the phone will typically ask is, can we count on your support? And if you answer no, uh, it seems like the call is quickly ended. In our case, we approached it differently. Um, we asked the question, what's most important to you? I'd introduce myself and or I'd volunteer to introduce themselves. I'm, I'm, I'm here with Mike Morris. He's looking to be your MP. We want to know what you care about, what's important to you, because that's the bedrock of our democracy is listening to what our neighbors care about. And then what I'm advocating now in Ottawa is based on what we heard. So I think it was that mix of putting in the work, you know, 45,000 doors. We got to every single one in 2019, some of them twice. We heard anecdotes along the way of, you know, someone sharing that by the time one of the main two parties got to someone's door, a person might say like, what took you so long? You know, the Greens have already been here twice. What's going on? Uh, so I think there's just no substitute for that, um, those conversations, you know, one conversation at a time and the tone of those conversations and the focus of those conversations. And over time, as we got closer to the election, we weren't naive about it. Towards the end of the conversation, we might then circle back to, you know, I'm really glad to hear, here's what, you know, I've been focused on. We might then follow up over time, but we just wouldn't jump right to, can we count on your support? We left space to focus on democracy first. It's a big part of why I chose to run with the Greens in the first place, right? Is, is, is that Greens, um, while we have common values, are really focused on putting community ahead of the party. It's why there's no whip votes. It's why when I was listening to those conversations, I could be genuine about it. And my opinion can change based on what I hear from neighbors. And I think that was a shift for a lot of people. And I can say in Kitchener, and my sense is it's, it's true in a lot of other places across the country, that's what 
it seemed to me like a lot of my neighbors were looking for is they were tired. They didn't want to hear me attacking some other political party. Uh, but for the chance to actually share for once and do most of the talking, I think that's what we need to be doing more of. And that's what we tried to double down on in 2021 also. So, you know, uh, a close finish in 2019 for you, you finished second in 2019. Uh, the Liberal, Rossini, won by about um, 6,000-ish votes. What made you decide to do it, do it all again in... Well, you probably didn't know it would be two years time, but what made you decide to do it again um, the next time? Well, I remember in the days after our loss in 2019, uh, one email in particular really struck a chord. I actually ended up uh, writing a blog post around it. Um, the person had said that she wanted me to know that she felt like we, she said, yeah, you, you didn't lose the gold, you won the silver. And that was a part of why I decided to keep going is knowing that we had built up such momentum. And in a lot of other cases, when you look at when Greens win, it usually does take a few election cycles. And what my experience was in 2021 is the question people asked was different, or the rebuttals even, I mean, I guess. In 2019, one of the main rebuttals was, you know, I like you, or I like the ideas, or I've heard good things, but I don't think you got a chance to win. Versus in 2021, the conversation shifted. The folks would say, well, I know you've got a chance to win. Tell me what kind of impact a green MP can have. And so I think in my decision-making, it was, first of all, taking some time to grieve um, between the cancer diagnosis, getting healthy, uh, kind of moving through the, the, those first six months, I took a bit of a step back. And when I decided in, in summer of, of 2020, to to continue through it was based on knowing that we had demonstrated the you know the results from last time the momentum we felt and i still had that sense of calling and you can't there's no bs to that that sense of calling i feel very lucky whenever i've had that in my life and using that as a kind of a compass i guess win or lose i feel like it was the right choice um i have never regretted following that deep sense of calling. And so knowing that that was still there, knowing that our chances of winning were that much stronger, knowing how much I enjoyed it, like for the time between the two elections, from that summer until the next one, we just kind of started to operate as kind of shadow MP. And whether that was bringing people together, we brought the arts and culture community together, for example, and then I did a whole blog series, or uh, we were doing backyard chats still. We were doing all the things that we felt an MP should be doing um based on knowing that uh, this community was one that had really rallied around it last time and that whenever an election was called we, we were ready to continue to build on it so august whatever august 20th of um 2021 comes around uh you see the cbc report that uh you know the prime minister is going to call an election what's the first thing that goes through your mind well, if I'm honest with you, by the time we got to that point, I was already just knocking on doors. Like we, like the, for us, the process was so much earlier. It was December of 2020 when we were on the phones with our biggest supporters, letting them know about the year-end deadline for them to make contributions and get their most, uh, their highest tax receipt back. Uh, it was then building up to uh, receiving the, nom the or winning the nomination again earlier in the year. 
Uh, we started knocking on doors as early as we could after doing a number of these blog posts to put out a kind of a local platform. I think our first day knocking was because of the pandemic, we wanted to be really careful. I think July 2nd or kind of early July was once we started getting back to doors. So by the time the writ dropped, uh, you know, it had been widely speculated. So we knew it was, it was coming at some point. And so that particular day, probably the only change was we were ready to go with getting lawn signs back out. And that was, it was kind of, you know, a fun vibe at the office as people started showing up uh, with cars and lawn signs and all the rest. And of course, at doors, the conversations got a little bit different. More people were more tuned in uh, as a result once the lawn signs are up and more of the media is talking about it. So there might have been a change in the vibe. But for us as a campaign, it was just kind of more of the same. Just go knock on more doors. Yeah. And, you know, on um, September 4th, um, the Kitchener Centre election became a national headline. Um, there were a lot of, you know, reports from media about alleged, you know, Ron doing well. The, the incumbent, Raj Saini, was an MP. Um, so that really kind of people, some people would say that kind of opened up the door to being like, yeah, you know, the Greens could actually win this riding. Did the resignation or, you know, step back of the Liberal team in Kitchener Centre, did that change the way that you campaigned at all? Or did it just kind of give you that push to the, the finish line that you needed to win? I don't know if it changed much of anything for us. We were you know, building a winnable campaign over the course of, you know, the last number of months. And we had... I remember the day that um, that the incumbent had announced that they were ending their campaign. For us, we just went back and kept knocking on more doors. Um, it, so it was it was really more the same. I, I think there was something to be said for you know there was I remember uh, you know uh, a previous uh, liberal member of provincial parliament who reached out a few days later and offered her endorsement. So I think there was it shifted some things for others particularly the national, as you mentioned, I think locally, a lot of people had already seen the momentum, what we, what we were building up locally. Uh, for some others, it shifted how they engaged with our campaign. But I appreciate how you asked the question. What I can actually answer isn't about others. I can only speak for myself. And, and for myself, it was just, well, let's just keep putting in the work. Um, and certainly when others would reach out, uh, we were, were happy to to receive that support. And I guess it shifted some of the conversations at the door as well. But in those conversations, I, I just tried to stay as genuine. Um, you know, I'm not here to speculate about others. Um, I, I tried to co focus our conversations, and that's the agency I had, was, was to make sure that I focused the conversation on, you know, what is the impact that one green MP can have? And I found myself talking a lot about what Mike Schreiner had accomplished in, in Guelph in terms of having an, an outsized voice. And I think that's, that's materialized uh, as well here. And the days after the election, you know, the amount of media attention on Kitchener Center uh, was likely shaped in some part by the fact that it's kind of rare to see a green win in Ontario. Well, all of a sudden, the priorities of my neighbors in Kitchener Center were getting far more media attention uh, than any anywhere else. And that was certainly part of my hope is that I'm gonna be committed to so many to be working hard, to being respectful and to staying honest. And that's what we tried to continue to do.
So September 20th rolls around, uh, the, the election um, day. Tell me, what walk me through what your election day looked like. I, I love uh, talking about election day because by the time you get to election day, most of the work as a candidate is done. Um, and on election day is when there's the most number of people that are, you know, giving rides to the polls and, uh, you know, fanned out across the riding to be getting out the vote. Um, and so, you know, I joined in on some of that, you know, right until, uh, you know, 8.55 on election night, I was out there on a, a, last, uh, a last run going, knocking on doors of supporters for those that we had records of not having voted yet. So I was, you know, a part of that effort. But I think there's a lot to be said for as the election goes on, the impact that an individual candidate can have, and I think certainly on, on election day, diminishes. And so it, it was just, there was, a, there was a great energy in the community on that particular day. You know, I you know, voted and we, uh, you know, shared that on social media, for example. There was great vibes at, at the office. Of course, a lot of family and friends were in also. So it was a... Um, it was particularly fun, but in a lot of ways, it was more of the same. We were just back at back at doors, uh, continuing to to put in everything we had till uh, uh, at every last opportunity. And then uh, Monday evening, right uh, after nine o'clock, the polls close. I would assume you had like a, a party, and you um, you you watched the results. Walk me through what that evening was like. Yeah, well, there was kind of two parts, if I can share with you, in terms of those moments. The first part was just back at the office, and we had uh, we were heading to a local pub for a party later in the evening. Uh, but you know, as polls closed, uh, myself, uh, my parents, some really close friends, Asha, our campaign uh, manager, we, we we were back at at the office, and volunteers were starting to bring back. Um, I guess they're called sequence sheets. We call them bingo sheets in, in the office. They're the records from the scrutineers, our volunteers at various polls um, that we started to receive back. And as we were watching CBC, um, they actually had us in the lead from the outset. The polls we were getting back in our own tracking early on actually had the conservatives in the lead. And so it was a bit uh, lower energy until a volunteer brought back four polls from a part of the riding where we'd come in third, uh, mostly all of them. We hadn't done particularly well in 2019. And they brought these back. I didn't know which ones they even were yet, but I saw that we'd, we'd won, I think, all of them. And I brought those back to this back room where Asha and others were all gathered, and they had the large map of the riding. And it's when they started to um, map those polls and we identified that those are where we came in third last time. I remember I had my brothers on FaceTime. Uh, one was in Montreal, one in Toronto. And I said to them, like, this is, I think this might actually happen. Like, this is real. These numbers are looking pretty good. And so I know Asha said, okay, we got to get to that party. Uh, she, had, she had a particular dress she wanted to get on. So we hopped in the car, a bunch of us. We drove over to Asha's. Uh, she got on uh, the, the dress she wanted to wear. Uh, we got over to the, to, the, to the party. And I guess the other kind of big moment, of course, walking in, there was a lot of good vibes. We were leading in some of the polls. But it was an interesting moment in that uh, I was trying to try to do a live interview on CPC. And uh, it had gotten interrupted a few times for various reasons. 
and it hadn't been called yet. And my dad, who was there, he kind of pulled my arm at one point, and uh, he'd been online, and my stepmom, I think, found it first. Apparently, Canadian press had called it, but CBC hadn't yet. So it was interesting that no one in the room knew. And my dad kind of pulled me on the side and said, Mike, Canadian press just called it. You won. And I just like, pulled Asha aside. I said the same thing to her. And um, sometimes you can't plan these things. Uh, but the photographer from the record, the Waterloo Region record, his name is Matthew. He happened to be there right at the moment where I shared with Asha that we had won. And she kind of put her hands up to the side of her. It's this really emotional moment that is now forever. My dad's in the background. So moments like that, Joshua, like um, it's just the overwhelming emotion of after all of that, after three years, we had, we, we had done what we had set out to do. Uh, and then within minutes, I was on CBC and it hadn't even been announced on CBC yet. So then I was kind of uh, not alluding to the fact that I already knew we had, we had won. There was some cheering in the background while I was live on CBC. I, I, the, 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 uh, the journalist online thought it was because they had shown we were in the lead. It was actually because they finally showed we'd actually won. Uh, and getting a chance to then you know, say a few words to that group. Um, I'm really glad we got that on video. Uh, it was it was a really special evening for sure to to be with all of those people, right? To look them in the eyes, you know, Scott and uh, Julia, like so many people who'd been with me on on so many streets after all of those doors and pairs of shoes and conversations. To be with that crew of people that we had done this together, um, yeah, really, really special. And then, you know, there was quite a bit of time between um, the the election and then the House of Commons uh, sitting for the first time in the 44th Parliament. Um, those must have been a long two months for you. Um, but what was it like that, you know, those first or the, the last few weeks of November when you finally were able to, you know, get your feet in the, get your feet on the floor of the House um, and start, you know, speaking and getting to know your fellow MP. Well, I remember like even just one of the first things we did when we got into parliament was of course electing the speaker. And I remember when I walked in one of those first times seeing so many people that I held in such high regard. I remember at one point we were we were lining up to place our votes for speaker. And I think it was Elizabeth Daniel Blakey and Adam Vancouverden that I was kind of chatting with in line as we're waiting to, to cast our votes for the speaker. And then as we walk by the ballot box, a number of liberal ministers were in that front row. And that's when I say the word surreal, you know, to think that these are now colleagues that I am, you know, have the privilege to be working with and will be working with hopefully for a good number of years. Um, you know, moments like that, I just thought to myself, wow. And then if I think ahead and how, you know, Adam and I actually have been able to work together on a number of things, including, you know, pushing for more investments in co-op housing, um, you know, I'm really, I, I feel quite fortunate for that. And then certainly those first few speeches too, um, you know, realizing that while you might have time to plan for a 10-minute speech, in a lot of the Q&A that, you know, that happens in the, in the House of Commons, that's just standing up and hoping the speaker might call on you to have a chance and, you know, realizing that I'm not going to have to or get a chance to plan out every intervention. This is going to need to be just from the heart 
uh, based on you know points of advocacy from my community. And so there's a mix of that surreal element and also just learning those protocols to be able to get in as often as I wanted to and to make sure I had a kind of a, 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 a strong voice. Uh, and I, I'm proud of, of the amount of times I've been able to, um, to speak on the floor of the House of Commons following in the lead of Elizabeth May in terms of um, uh, you know, being present there and, and respecting the parliament and the role of parliamentarians to be having meaningful dis discourse. And uh, you know, I tried to get right into that from the outset in, no in November. Yeah, you've had 215 interventions since November, which seems like a lot. Um, so I know one of the things that you're really advocating for on Parliament Hill is to the reintroduction of the Canada Disability Benefit. Can you talk a little bit more about why that's so important? Well, it goes right back to the campaigns. This is the benefit of having knocked on thousands of doors is that uh, I now have the... Um, uh, those stories to refer back to and what I'm advocating for in Ottawa is based on what I heard most often. And, and one of the um, concerns I heard most often is from folks with disabilities in my community who are living in legislated poverty. The Ontario Disability Support Program, you know, it's 1169, for example, for a single person. The housing allowance is less than $500 a month. Show me one apartment a person can rent in Kitchener for less than 500. It's just not there. And so it came from hearing those stories um, and then groups like Disability Without Poverty who came to me after being elected to say, hey, we've been in the midst of this campaign. Would you be willing to sponsor and bring forward a petition on the floor of the House of Commons? And then the third piece. So first of all, you know, having it as a priority of my neighbors is the most important. Having allied organizations and those you know, who have lived experience, in this case from the disability community, who had been leading the charge. But then third, having it as a priority of the governing party, in this case a promise they'd made for two years without following through. So we knew we weren't just kind of yelling into the void, we knew that this was constructive, that they had made the commitment, but it wasn't in the throne speech. And it, it, you know, it wasn't in the fall economic statement. And we know there are promises that the governing party has made that they haven't followed through on electoral reform. We spoke about last time as one example and proportional representation more specifically. So we know just by making promises doesn't mean they're going to follow through. I think the first promise on Pharmacare was like 1997. We haven't seen that yet either. And so to be able to take what I'd heard from my neighbors and then focus our advocacy with Disability Without Poverty, that's why... I think we've been able to make some progress, but that's why we started that petition. In fact, before I sat on the floor of the House of Commons, we opened that petition, I think in October. Uh, it was really one of the very first uh, interventions, uh, but it really just came from my neighbors first and foremost. And that's who I'm accountable to and, that, and th that's who I'm attempting to represent well. And that's why whether it's housing or the disability benefit or mental health, it's those priorities of my neighbors I'm trying to bring to the forefront. Let's talk a little bit more about the state of the House of Commons in general. There was um, a column by the Toronto Star's Althea Raj, I'm sure you're aware of, and it did not paint a very positive look on the House of Commons. What would you say are the biggest areas of concern that you have with the House of Commons 
when it rose. Well, I guess there's a few. I remember early on someone sharing with me, this is another parliamentarian, and they had said, like, you know, question period is not real. Like, we, we do the theatrics during question period, and then we go back to our normal selves afterwards. And that just never sat well with me. Um, like, how, like, no, this is this is part of how we engage with each other. And so I have found question period to be more difficult. And it's unfortunate because when the most number of people are watching um, that it seems like the quality of the discourse is at its lowest, particularly when the galleries opened up again, you had like grade five, six students who were watching this and you think, okay, this is an opportunity for parliamentarians to, to really get at and have meaningful discourse on, on what's most important to Canadians. And that's, not what you or I would usually see. And there's sometimes some, some quite, there are, there are exceptions and there are some exceptional uh, parliamentary secretaries and, and uh, some exceptional ministers also who have really answered questions that come from a less partisan. So it's, I don't want to paint the brush, you know, make overly broad generalizations, but I do find question period difficult. And then also, you know, you follow it closely. I know in those last six weeks, the animosity between the liberals and the conservatives that led to conservatives saying their only resort was to be as obstructionist as they were. And then liberals to say their only last resort was to continue to time allocate and end debates. Um, you know, if you look at C11, for example, where it got to the point where the liberals felt like they had to introduce a motion that didn't even allow for debate on each amendment. Um, you know, hearing from other MPs saying, you know, if if we had had better relationships and less acrimony towards the end, we probably would have actually gotten a few more reasonable amendments passed. So you could even say, or I would put forward that the quality of the legislation suffered as a result of the acrimony uh, between parties. And I don't think it needed to be that way. Um, and, 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 and it doesn't all fall on, on one. There, I think there's a kind of a shared responsibility and certainly, you know, sitting till midnight back to back, uh, doesn't probably add to the quality of the conversation. Um, but you know, it was felt that was needed based on some of the, op the obstructionist tactics, uh, that, that, uh, that were, were being, uh, put forward. I thought Althea did a really uh, nice job capturing a lot of that. Um, uh, the kind of energy in the House of Commons in those last number of weeks. I guess the last thing I want to say, though, is that we still got some meaningful things done. And I think it's important to do everything we can to build trust in our democracy. And that is both in how I try to role model my role as an MP on the floor of the House of Commons in those you know, 215 or whatever interventions you mentioned earlier, but also to share back that you know, we did you know, past conversion or putting a ban to conversion therapy unanimously in, in, in December. There were moments like that where I saw parliamentarians working together um, that I think are, are, are you know, opportunities to, to learn from and, and, and to build more uh, momentum around what's possible if we were to turn down the partisanship. Can you explain kind of the, the idea behind using routine motions first of all what a routine motion is you know kind of why they're useful yeah, yeah sure and my understanding is while it, it was the conservatives in this session they aren't the first ones to do this uh, in past sessions uh liberals and ndp and others have have done the same i think the thinking is one of the tools available 
to parliamentarians if they want to oppose the government legislation uh, and agenda of the day is is to um, to uh, slow down or impede the ability of the governing party to move their legislation ahead. And there's various procedures. You can do that by introducing motions, by, by calling, at one point they were calling votes on which conservative member would speak next to use up another half hour of time. There was various uh, ways this was done, but ultimately it was because there was a breakdown. I wasn't in, in, in the room, of course, but in the conversations between House leaders where they're trying to kind of collaborate on, on the agenda on the floor of the House of Commons, I guess those didn't go particularly well. And of course, the conservatives were likely unhappy with the supply and confidence agreement between the liberals and the NDP, feeling that they didn't, they, they were trying to like look for the ways they could, um, you know, have their influence exerted. Um, but I think it is important to point out that they're not the only ones to do this. Um, it was the first in my lived experience being there on the House of, on, on, on the floor of the House of Commons to see it. Um, and again, it, 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 it didn't need to get to that. Um, and I, I hope that maybe as we return in September, maybe the, the temperature comes down a little bit because one of my larger concerns is some of the language that's used. Because you know there were some MPs who were using words like dictator or treason. And when MPs use that kind of language, even censorship to describe C11, and as you might know, I voted against C11, but I made clear there's nothing about censorship in that bill. And when MPs start using that kind of language, that is what I then hear in the streets. It, 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 it funnels and plays on anger and a series of emotions that I don't think is helpful to our democracy. Again, it might help score political points and rally a base of supporters. Um, but I think we could do better to engage with Canadians as a whole rather than uh, playing to the sentiments of a small core base of supporters. All right. We're going to move on to a really quick rapid fire round. I'm going to ask you a question about a wide variety of topics and you're going to answer them. <laughs> I'll do my best. <laughs> Number one, uh, the current um, salary, base salary for a member of parliament is $185,000 annually. Should we raise it? Should we lower it? Should we keep it the same? I think it's too high. Can I ask why? Uh, because I think it's more difficult for MPs to be able to represent their constituents if their salaries aren't reflective of uh, that of the average Canadian. And that I also feel that it's in our best interest to have people in this position uh, for their that sense of calling as opposed to anything to do with salaries. And you voted in favor of extending uh, a hybrid parliament system until uh, th around this time in 2023. Uh, why did you vote in favor of it and when do you think if we should end uh, the hybrid parliament? Well, first of all, we need to recognize we're still in a pandemic and uh, we need to ensure that the right protocols are in place to allow for parliamentarians to engage. Uh, again, we've seen the COVID cases amongst parliamentarians included. I think longer term, there's, there's a debate to be had. One of 
the points that has really resonated with me though is is recognizing if we're going to do better to bring together and we have you know women for example who are underrepresented in the house of commons recognizing how difficult it is for young parents as one example to step in to represent their community as a parliamentarian well if you allow for hybrid does that mean a young mom in bc might be more able to consider uh, stepping up and serving their community in this way. So I think there's a debate still to be had about how we continue it, if we continue it past uh, the pandemic. But I think, yeah, think about how we have Parliament as a more inclusive space should be part of that conversation. So Mike, uh, why did you vote against Bill C-11? Because I felt that there weren't sufficient amendments in place to... Uh, be mindful of an overreach from the CRTC that could affect um, content producers and musicians who are making uh, revenue directly or indirectly. In short, I'm concerned it might do more harm than good. And there is some good elements of it, uh, but uh, yeah, concerned it might do more harm than good. Um, and then also, you know, on Friday, we had a national, a pretty much national internet and telecom outage. There are a wide variety of suggestions being made from people on how to prevent this from happening again, all the way from government needs complete control to open the markets for competition and maybe a little bit of both. Where do you stand on how we can improve and prevent what happened? Well, I think it demonstrates the need to take some action. And the reality that when you limit the number of competitors to see the impact that, you know, one company's uh, uh, mistake can have on our national security even. And so I think it's important, you know, before I jump to here's the recommended solution, you know, some are calling to uh, nationalize telecommunications, others for more competition. I think all of those should be on the table. And certainly as there's discussion around a potential merger to further limit competition, that's, I think, demonstrates why that's such a, con a concern. And that's, uh, of all the options, not the direction that we should be going towards. And last spring, you were in the speaker's chair for a, a period, for a short period of time. What was that like? I'm so appreciate you caught that. That was such an honor uh, to be asked to sit. It was, of course, a little bit surreal when they kept saying Mr. Speaker and they were uh, folks were referring uh, to me. Um, and I hope to have a chance to to do it again. Um, there is, you know, as someone who I, I really think it's important that we hold some decorum in in the House of Commons, and that of course the the Speaker has an opportunity to have an influence on that. Um, and I had some, you know, really kind comments from a number of other parliamentarians afterwards. And so it was a, it was a real honor to get asked to do it. And lastly, if you were to give your, you know, 14-year-old uh, self one piece of advice, what piece of advice would that be? Be willing to continue to take time to listen to the advice from others. And it might sound cliche, but maybe some cliches are true to, to follow your heart. And my sense is when I've made choices throughout my life that have been based on what I know is true in my core, um, I've never been let, been let down. Awesome. Mike Morris, thank you so much for taking the time for me today. Uh, thanks again. This is such a, um, a joy to be with you again. And, and, and hopefully over the coming months and years, uh, we'll have a chance to chat more.
Thank you for listening to this special, very long episode of Political Debrief. As always, a regular episode of Political Debrief will be available this time next week, Monday, August 15th at approximately 2 p.m. Eastern Time. If you want to stay connected with the show, feel free to follow me on Twitter at Josh Oliverio, or you can follow the show on Instagram at Political Debrief Show. You can also check out all of our previous episodes by subscribing to on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, and please consider checking out the show on YouTube. Those links are available below. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next week.